Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. I mentioned this last week. We are finishing out a series that we started at the beginning of 2020 entitled Satisfied. Really walking through verse by verse through the book of Colossians, looking at this idea that satisfied in Christ means this, believing and experiencing that Jesus is better. That's what we have been going after. And, and so if you weren't here last week, I know it's been a while since we were in Colossians. We paused because uh, we, we all went to our homes and we walked through Psalm 27 and that was an amazing psalm. But we're finishing out Colossians. We don't want to leave things unresolved. We want to finish out this book that we spent so much time in. And, and so we're really going after that idea. The graphic is done on uh, a certain way on purpose if you notice that graphic that we have of satisfied, you have one side that is desert, the other side that looks very lush and green because our lives symbolize one of those two quadrants. We could find our lives and we're in a dry place, we're in a desert place. Uh, many of us may, may find ourselves in that situation because of the experiences that we have walked through or in those experiences right now. I think it's so interesting. I said this last week that we, we began this year looking at, man, what does it mean to be satisfied in Jesus Christ, to be satisfied in him alone, to, be, to, to really say, man, Jesus is better than whatever you put in that blank and have we not been tested to really believe and do we believe and are we experiencing that Jesus is better because our lives have been turned upside down and those things that we may have been looking for satisfaction have been taken away from us because we've been in quarantine, because we haven't been able to go back to some of the things that we may have loved. And so the, I, for me, I'll speak for myself, the Lord has really said, Johnny, do you, do you really find your satisfaction ultimately in me? And the Lord has taught me that and is teaching me that and will continue to do so. But really looking at this idea of believing, not just knowing, but believing and experiencing that Jesus is better. And so we find ourselves in Colossians 2, verses 22, all the way through the first verse of chapter 4. That's the passage of scripture that we are going to look at today. Just to give you a little heads up, last week we talked about the relationships of children with their parents, children with their fathers, the responsibility that children have to obey their parents and honor their parents, the responsibility that fathers have to lead their households well, to demonstrate the loving kindness of our our Heavenly Father in their home. We looked at those 10 characteristics and how we lead our families in the instruction of the Lord. And so this morning we find ourselves in a passage of scripture that when we read it, you're going to be like, how in the world does that apply to us today? So if I didn't pique your interest, that was a great tease, right? Let's look at verse 22. I'm going to read all the way through verse 1 of chapter 4. Colossians 3.22 says this, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as a reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, before we can 
apply this passage of scripture and dive into this passage of scripture and look what the Lord would have for us today, we got to look at some context of what was going on during this time. We need to understand what the term bondservant means. Some of your translation may say slave. So here's what it means. In the context that Colossians is written, and remember, the Roman Empire is ruling the known world at this time. Uh, that, this culture, this context, here's what was going on during this time. Ancient historians estimate that there were some 60 million bondservants in the Roman Empire. It's crazy, right? So that would equal about one half of the population. So one half of the population of the Roman Empire were bond servants or slaves. That was new to me. And so think about that alone. Think about how awful that is. Think about the ramifications of that on the culture that Paul was writing this letter, that this church was living in. And because of this, here's what was interesting. Work in general was only done by those bond servants. Like if you were a Roman free person, you did absolutely no work. Like you did nothing. I don't know if you just sat on your uh, lounge and someone fanned you and fed you grapes. I have no idea. But the only people that worked were the bond servants. And here's what you need to understand. So there's this ancient Near East idea of slavery, like, like what happened in the ancient Near East, because this, this culture of the way slavery was done dates all the way back to the Egyptian empire. Like you can go into Genesis and find Joseph being sold into slavery. So, so it's, you don't have to go far into the Bible to, to find this. And it was adopted by Rome, obviously, because Paul is writing about it. Here's what you need to understand that's, that's different in this context that maybe what we think of slavery as in regards to our American context, as wicked as that was, not that that excuses what was going on in the Roman Empire, but there are differences. Let me give you them to you. Bond servants or slave were made up of all races. So obviously in our American context, you had slaves being brought from Africa, but in this context, in the Roman context, and really what you see throughout the Bible when this was happening, not that it was condoned, but what was happening is, is it didn't matter what race you were. All races were subject to this. Bond servants also could be educated and gain status. So I'm not saying that to say, oh, this was an amazing thing to be in. What I'm saying, though, is remember, only the bond servants worked. So you could be a doctor and be a bond servant. You could be a teacher and be a bond servant. You could, you could be a hairdresser and be a bond servant. You could, you could, you could be someone who worked in the fields and be a bond servant. I mean, it was, it was a broad context of what your role was if you were a bond servant, much different than what we find in our American context, right? Here's another thing that was different. People could be bond servants because... That particular empire, Rome overthrew it and put those people into slavery, into this system that existed. So that was one way that you could be a bondservant. But here's what was interesting. Another way that you could be a bondservant is you could actually put yourself in that. So in other words, if you had debts that you needed to pay off, that you didn't have the money to be able to do, then, or, or you were living in poverty and you had no means to meet the needs that you had, you would put yourself in this uh, system. And what else is interesting is the lowest class of society, 
Which if we're thinking, right, once again in our American context, that would have been the lowest class of societies if you were involved in slavery. Here, the lowest class of society would have been the day laborer. That would have been someone who's like, hey, I'm going to look and see if there's work today. And if there's not, then I'm going to just be hungry. The day laborer was actually lower class than the bondservant. So here's the most obvious question you should be asking if you're not asking this already. Why doesn't Paul in this passage of scripture denounce this system? Right? That's what I, that's what I was. Every time I look at this passage of scripture, I feel that tension. Every time. Why doesn't Paul just denounce this system, this bondservant system, this slavery system, rather than giving instruction on how the bound servant should react in this system? Right? That's a good question. So let me answer that. First of all, what you need to understand is the church during this time is brand new. It was, it was in its infancy. It had no power or influence. Much different than what we find in our American history context, right? So this church was... In its infancy, no power to change the social economic structure of the day. You also had nuances. You had some people that were put in that against their will, and you had other people that chose to be in that so that they could be provided for it. So there were nuances to what was going on here. Therefore, Paul addresses, because of these things, how a believer should act in spite of this sinful system. In spite of this social economic system. But here's what Paul also does that was countercultural to the day. Because let me just review again. When Paul talks about the relationship between a husband and wife, it was very countercultural and controversial. Because remember, the husband was the authority. He, he could treat his wife like a doormat, and no one would have looked twice about it. Remember last week, I talked about the Roman law that existed between a father and his children. He could treat his children pretty much any way that he wanted. Because he was viewed as this person that could not be challenged. And so when Paul writes to children and parents and how fathers are to conduct themselves, it was countercultural. And what Paul writes in this passage of scripture, even in spite of him not saying, let's overthrow the system, it's still very countercultural and controversial to what was going on in this system. Let me tell you why. Here's the first reason why. Because Paul actually in this passage of scripture addresses bond servants by name. Most people believe there was probably many of them that were a part of this church. Here's why that's controversial. Because if you had bond servants, you didn't even speak to them. It didn't matter if they were a doctor taking care of you physically. You didn't give them the time of day. And so by Paul addressing them, he was giving them value, intrinsic value. Here's another thing that Paul does that's controversial and countercultural. He says to the bondservants that they need to obey, but he makes many references in verse 22 and verse 23 and verse 24 to the Lord, which challenges the Roman culture that the male is the head, the sole authority, the coup d'etat of the home. Here's another thing that Paul does that's controversial and countercultural, is he makes clear that the bondservant's master isn't really their master. Like, just think about that. And, and what I described went on during this culture, and Paul addressing that, hey, uh, you individuals who aren't working and sitting on your duff all day long and making everyone else do it, guess what? You're not really that bond servant's master. 
They have a higher master. That would, have been, that would have been massively controversial. Here's another thing that would have been controversial and countercultural. Is, the, is Paul says, you bondservants will re- receive an inheritance from the Lord. Bondservants weren't promised anything. They didn't get an inheritance. Countercultural. Here's another thing. Paul qualifies masters as earthly masters. Like Paul's going to literally put them in their place. And then he says that you're going to give an account for how you lead. So I'm saying all of that because, because let's face it. I mean, our times are, are, are all in turmoil and everything. And so this probably wouldn't have been the passage of scripture that I would have chose out of nowhere to speak on right now. With everything that's going on in our country, with, with, with all the things that are going on, and rightly so, striving for equality and all that between races and all of that, that this probably wouldn't be the passage of Scripture I would speak on. So can we just mention the elephant in the room, right? But, but God's word, how does it apply to us today? Because I believe we can do that. And the second question that we need to ask ourselves is how do we apply this? Like do we just throw it out? Because thankfully, this system doesn't exist in our modern world today. Do we just throw it out? Well, I think it's important that I say this, though, that even though Paul didn't start a revolt here in the early church in Colossae, or Paul also talks this, about this to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 6, there's teaching on the Bible that speaks out on this. Exodus 21, 16, perfect example, says this. Human, it, it literally says in verse 16 that human beings were not to be kidnapped or sold. Jesus obviously, obviously speaks to this in the most well-known passage of Scripture probably in the New Testament where Jesus says there's two great commandments in Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So I'm also not giving the indication that because Paul doesn't talk about revolting this system in this context. Remember, the church had no power, no influence at this time. It doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't clearly speak out against this issue. Even Paul's other letters we can apply to how we should treat other people. And thankfully, though far too late, it led to the system being done away with. Now, how do we apply it? Here's how I think we apply it, is we can look at this and say, thankfully, though this system doesn't exist anymore, we still can look at it and say, well, what in, do we find in this pastor's scripture that can help me and how I approach how I work in the occupation that God has given me today? And how can I, if I'm someone who's an employer and have people working for me in my own business or I'm a supervisor at a workplace, how do, how do I take these principles on what the Lord says and how I should lead others that are under my care? So here's the idea that I want you to get today. So if you're watching online, if you're in this place, write this down. Here's the idea that I want, want us to get. A satisfied heart is a result of Christ being exalted in your work, in your work. We've talked about Christ being exalted in our home. We talked about Christ being exalted in our marriage. But, but here we can take this passage of scripture and apply it to how should we exalt Christ in our workplace? I wonder this morning, just ask yourself this. Are you satisfied in the job that you are doing right now? Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. Think about that. 
Because oftentimes we can be looking for our satisfaction in what we do for a job. Maybe you've lost your job. You're in this room and you're watching online and you've lost your job and you're despondent and, and I don't minimize that at all. That's a reality. But where are we looking for our satisfaction? Because if our satisfaction is found in Christ, regardless of what we're doing, we see it as a way to exalt Christ. So think about just this last week. If you have worked, if you've been involved in the workforce, take a moment and think about how you have exalted Christ in your workplace. Think about it right now. Have you done that? Some of you may be thinking and saying, well, not so well. Not so well. Others of you are like, you know what, I'm, I, this has caused me to be thankful for my work, and so I've been working hard and awesome. Praise God for you. Here's what I want to do. I want to give you two results when Christ is exalted in your work in the time we have left. And the first one is found in verses 22 through 24. Here's how Christ is exalted in my work The result is when that's happening that it will shape and it will motivate how I work. That when I'm exalting Christ in my workplace, here's what that will do. It will will shape and motivate how I work. We see that in verses 22 through 24 where Paul is talking about how should the bondservant work in the environment that they are put in, even in a sinful system like this. And I want to give you four ways in how we should work with the Lord from these verses, and we're going to go through these quickly. Here's the first one. You need to work obediently. How do you be a testimony at your workplace? You need to work obediently. Paul says this, obey, that literally means place yourself under in everything. Now, Remember, just like last week, I said that, that, that there is a caveat to that. It's if someone asks you, if in your workplace someone asks you to do something contrary to the word of God. Remember Acts 5, 29, obey God rather than men. But obediently, those who, it says, are your earthly masters. We can apply it, your earthly employers. Here's what that practically looks like when we talk about working obediently. Do what's asked of you. Do what's asked of you. Here's what's so amazing in our society nowadays. I mean, if you just started working, like, like you've gotten a new job you've never worked before or, or you've been working for a while, here, I'm gonna tell you how to get employee of the month. Are you ready? Just do what you're told. Like you were hoping for something tremendously profound that you could walk, like you had your pen ready, Right? Do what you're told. I mean, it's sad anymore, but, but that rarely happens anymore. Rarely. Like, when I'm dealing with someone and I'm at a, you know, whether I'm in a store, whether I'm on the phone with customer service, whatever it is, when someone tells me they're gonna do something, I have gotten to the place, this is terrible, I'm, I'm being vulnerable right now, I don't believe them. In my mind, I'm like, okay, what do I need to do to follow up with you so I can make sure you do what you said? That's just the reality today. And the beautiful thing is, is the bar has been, well, it's not the most, it's not the beautiful thing, but for you who's a believer, if you work obediently and do what's asked of you, you are going to excel. Work obediently. Here's the second thing. Work genuinely. What does, what does Paul say? Not with eye service. 
These are very descriptive terms, very, very illustrative terms. That eye service literally means don't work in such a way that you're making a false impression in your owners, in your, in your employer or your owner of, your, of the business that you work for in their presence. I think we all get what eye service, right? Like, like all of a sudden, man, you're, you're like employee to the nines when the boss is around, when she's around. And then when she's not around, you're just goofing off, right? Not with eye service. Or as people pleasers, Followers of Jesus, get this, followers of Jesus ought to be the hardest workers. They ought to be the hardest workers in the workplace. Like if someone was, if, if, if someone was to go and to ask your employer about you, would they say that you are someone who works obediently, you are someone that works genuinely, that you are one of the hardest workers in that place? Why should I do that? What's the motivation for doing that? So that Christ can be exalted in my workplace. So someone can look at me and say, man, there's something different about you. Here's something else you need to understand. Character always trumps competency or capacity. All day long. All day long. You can have the greatest IQ, you can have the most degrees, you can be the the, the brightest mind, but if you don't have character, you're not the worker that the Lord wants you to be. It's just we need to work genuinely. Here's, here's, Here's something else I want us to understand. Get this, some of you may have heard this before, but I want to remind us of it. Reputation is what others think of you. Character is who you are and what you do when no one else is around. You could be fooling everybody that you're working for or you're working with, but character is who you are and what you do when no one else is around. And the Lord says that the way he wants his children to work is to work not with eye service, not as people pleasers, but to work genuinely, not with some hypocritical work ethic that I'm a hypocrite with my words to my employer. I'm a hypocrite with my hands to my employer. No, 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 I'm working genuinely. Here's the third thing, I'm working sincerely. Look at what else it says at the end of verse 22. It says, with sincerity of heart. That literally means with pure motivations. Fearing the Lord. Remember how I said this passage of scripture is controversial even in the time that Paul is writing it? Because what Paul is saying is, listen, you may have a jerk who is over you, but you ain't working for him or her. You're working for the Lord. You fear the Lord. You work sincerely with pure motivations. And can I just say where this gets tested the most? I mean, it's been a while since I've been in the secular workforce. I will admit that. But you know where I found that this got tested the most? In the break room, right? I also used to teach in a Christian school, by the way, in a Christian college, by the way. You know where else this gets tested? In the teacher's lounge, right? Some of you are just hoping you can be in the teacher's lounge in the fall. I get it. It's where it gets tested the most. You know what I found, man, in in the jobs that I had in high school and college? Like, I worked for some pretty amazing employers who gave us some amazing benefits, but you know what I found? It didn't matter how good the benefits were and how well we were treated. It was just the end thing to do to complain about the boss. 
Didn't matter what it was. And you separate yourself from the pack. And you show that there's something different in you when you don't engage in that type of thing. Why? Because God has called us to work sincerely with pure motivations. Actions is what others see. Motives is what the Lord sees. It's so important. And that word fearing the Lord is key as we look at this passage of Scripture. Because what that literally has the idea of what Paul is stressing to these people who have been put in this terrible situation, whether it has been against their will or whether they've had no other choice, is he reminds them, you are working for one agenda. You're not working ultimately for your boss's agenda. You're working for one agenda. And what is that? Worshipful submission to the Lord. That's what fear literally means. When you find fear of the Lord, it's not this that you're cowering in fear. It's this reverence, yes, but it's a worshipful submission that, Lord, I'm doing this for you. I want to work sincerely with pure motivations because I understand that you are the one that's ultimately watching. I understand that the way that I work reflects whose I am. Here's another thing. He says that we need to work purposefully. Not just obediently, not just genuinely, not just sincerely, but purposefully. Look at verses 23 and 24. He says, whatever you do, work heartily. That word heartily literally means from your soul. So I mentioned Matthew 22, verse 37 before, right? What does that say? Love the Lord your God, and it says, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. It literally has this idea with everything that you have, all of you. So when Paul says, hey, whatever you do, work, he's literally saying, work from your soul. Put everything that you have into it. As for the Lord and not for men. It's so awesome how God's word works. Like God answers the questions before we ask them. Because I could be looking at this passage of scripture and say, well, he says whatever you do, work heartily. But you know what? My boss doesn't deserve me to work heartily. Like he's, he's a jerk. He doesn't pay me enough. He treats me poorly. He doesn't see what I'm doing. And then all of a sudden you come, wait a minute, who am I working for? As for the Lord and not for men. Well, I'm not getting paid enough. I'm, I'm getting overlooked and other people are getting promoted in my place and I'm being treated longly. Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. We work purposefully. Now in this context, once again, bond servants could have gotten some reward for some things that, that they had done, but they weren't gonna get an inheritance for their work. So Paul makes reference. Wait a minute. There's something that awaits you. There's something that you can look forward to. You're being treated wrongly. Let me give you some perspective. You're not being treated fairly. Let me give you you some perspective. What you're doing is being overlooked. Let me give you some perspective. You are going to receive an inheritance from the Lord of what is already yours and what is to come. And what is that inheritance? That I am someone who has been loved by God through Jesus Christ, that he saved me from my sin. He gave me a relationship with him. So my identity is not found in what I do, but my identity is found in whose I am. 
That's what Paul is emphasizing. That's what we need to be reminded of this morning. That I have the power of the Holy Spirit to give me the strength that I can't do on my own. That I have the Holy Spirit that can help me tomorrow morning when I get up and go to the job that I don't necessarily like. That I can do it in such a way that exalts Christ. Why? Because I have an inheritance through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's part of my inheritance. And I have a home awaiting me in heaven where I will rule and reign with the Lord. We gotta remind ourselves of that. That when I work, it's more than just punching a clock and being done and saying, I can't wait till five o'clock happens. I mean, I'm working purposefully. I just said this a minute ago, but I wanna say it again. You are not defined by what you do. You ever find that that's the question that we ask? Hey, what's your name? What do you do? Right? I do that. I do that in the lobby, right? Just trying to get conversation. But when we ask that, I wonder if some of us are like, man, I don't want to tell that person what I do. Or I don't have a job right now. Or I don't like my job. Or that person's asking me. I know they have a better job than I have. And so you feel shamed over that. Wait a minute. You're not defined by what you do. You're defined by who you are. Too many times we put the adjective in the wrong place when we describe ourselves. I'm a blank Christian rather than I'm a Christian that does this. I'm a follower of Christ who does this. I'm a child of God bought and paid for by Jesus Christ because of this. I work purposefully. And when you understand that the person that you work for is not ultimately your boss, that you may not care for, it changes the way that you work. Man, I've had bosses, some bosses that are great, like I said, and I've had some bosses that were terrible. My first job, I got paid $4.25. That was minimum wage, right? I would have killed for seven, whatever it is, 25, 750. And I remember I worked in a plant nursery in Orlando, Florida, where there's no breeze. It's over 100 degrees in the summer. And literally, our boss would, would make this bonfire on his property, and he would start cutting down trees, and we had to pick up the, the, the stumps and throw them in the hot fire. And at the end of the week, after taxes, I didn't even break $100. Not particularly fond of that boss. Listen, secret, secret, nobody else is going to say this. Like nobody else online is going to say this. I worked for some pastors that weren't the greatest. But you know what I'm reminded of? If that's you, you know what you need to be reminded of? What Paul says here, wait a minute. Work, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive an inheritance. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. The way we work reveals who we ultimately work for. Some of us, here's what I want you to say today. It's gonna be very liberating for you. Here's what I want you to say out loud. Just say this, Jesus is my boss. Say that again. Jesus is my boss. We work purposefully. Here's the second thing in the way that Christ is exalted in our work. Here's the second result. Not only does it shape and motivate how I work, but listen, if we have been given a platform to lead others, to have others work underneath us, it shapes and motivates how we lead. Look at what it says, verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back 
for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Remember I said how this passage of scripture, even though Paul doesn't literally condemn it, he basically is by what he says here. He's saying, listen, if you're being treated unfairly, masters, you better wake up because you are gonna be treated as fairly as you have treated other people. And so if you're leading this morning, if you have a platform that God has given you, that you have people working underneath you, there is a tremendous responsibility for you to exalt Christ in the way that you lead. So how should we lead? Let me give you two things. First, we lead justly. Justly. See, if I'm an employer, my employment practices are to reflect the character of the God I serve. So remember how I said followers of Jesus Christ should be the greatest workers, the hardest workers? Followers of Jesus Christ who have the platform and have the responsibility to lead others ought to be the greatest leaders there are, ought to be the greatest employers there are. You ought to have a line waiting to put in their resume to work for you. Why? Because you understand the responsibility you have to exalt Christ in the way that you leave, that your practices reflect how God loves you, how God leads you. How does he do that? He does it justly. Here's a sobering thought. I wrote this down. God will deal with your business and your life in accordance with how you deal with those who work for you. Well, you're like, where do you get that? Verse 25. It's not something I just made up. God will deal with your business and your life in accordance with how you deal with those who work for you. Get this, righteousness and justice are the two pillars in the kingdom of God. Righteousness and justice. I could preach a whole other sermon on how those words have been stolen from the church, but I'm gonna stick to this text. And you don't have one without the other. And God expects righteousness and justice to be carried out by those he has put in authority. And if they do not, then there's an insurance, what Paul is saying here, that there is a righteous God who will not be unjust. And there will be consequences for wrongdoing. Here's what I love, what the Lord literally is is saying here through Paul, who is his instrument. God doesn't play favorites. Isn't that awesome? God doesn't play favorites. Your boss... Your supervisor, if you're a boss or a supervisor, praise God you have that platform. But listen to me, that means nothing to the Lord. You could be leading a Fortune 500 company. Praise God for that, but God's not impressed by that. God doesn't play favorites. But what he has done is he's given you, if that's you, and you've been given a platform, he's the one that's given you that authority. He's the one that's placed you in that position. Whether you love him or you don't want to have anything to do with him, he's placed you in that position. And equality is not determined by what title you have, but whose image you have been made in. So important to understand. And I'll give an account And I need to lead the way that the Lord leads me. He leads me justly. He doesn't play favorites. And I will give an account for the way that I lead. And that ought to cause us, when we really understand that, if we've been given a responsibility to lead others, and God has put me in that position along with you, if that's you, that I just don't lead justly, but I'm called to lead humbly. 
Verse 4, 1 says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. What is he saying? You are not it. You're not it. You may think you're it, but you're not it. You want to know if you're a great leader? You want to know, like, today and the time we have left, if you're a great leader? Here's what you need to do. You just need to turn around figuratively and see who's following because if you're given a title, that doesn't automatically make you a leader. You know you're a great leader when you have people that want to follow you. That's what makes you a great leader. And the way that you gain influence, the way that you gain influence is by being a servant first. That's what Paul is saying here. Wait a minute. You think you're the master? You have another master. And you need to serve him, your servant leader. In other words, you don't ask someone to do that you aren't willing to do yourself. And let me tell you something. The people that you lead know if you're that or not. Because the greatest leaders have learned to be the greatest followers first. My first church that I served at when I was graduated from seminary was in rural Pennsylvania. It's pastored by a guy, Ted Rudy. Pastor there for almost 30 years. If there was a guy who taught me this, it was him. He wouldn't mind me saying this, he's retired. Wasn't the greatest preacher, for sure. Wasn't the greatest visionary, for sure. But that guy knew how to be a servant. And those people would give their life for him. I was so amazed, but when I got ordained, which is a process that you go through where they ask you, where you have other pastors ask you all these questions, that you hope you know and you don't want to look foolish that you don't. Like, it, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty big deal. And when I got ordained, one of the things that the, that the senior pastor did is one of the things that he gave, he gave me a towel with my name on it. Why? Because he wanted me to learn what it looked like to be a servant leader. Not because that's some novel idea or something he got out of the greatest best New York Times bestseller on leadership. No, because that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. And the way that I lead others well is by following Jesus' example. Listen to me. You want to know the greatest leadership book that there is? Don't go to Amazon. Here it is. The way that I work, the way that, that I lead, it's right here. Matthew 22, or 20, verses 26 through 28. Let me just summarize this passage of Scripture, and we'll be done this morning. It says, Jesus says this, but whoever would be the greatest among you must be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Every one of us this morning have different roles, different responsibilities, different occupations, different platforms. But can I share with you as we close what our ultimate job description is as a follower of Jesus Christ? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 20 is our job description. If you're watching this online and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this passage of scripture is your heavenly job description from your God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, let me read it. It says this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God 
who through Christ reconciled us to himself, look at this, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And what is he saying? He's saying, this is the God that you serve. This is the Savior that you serve. That he demonstrated for you what it looks like to be a minister of reconciliation. He demonstrated for you in this context what it looks like to work for him. What it looks like to lead for him. That you are to demonstrate the same compassion and love and servant leadership in the way that he has done. Because there would be no gospel without the Lord being the servant that he was. Verse 20, therefore... What's our responsibility? What's our job description? We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Listen to me. If I came up with a plan on how the gospel is to go out to the world, I'm not sure I would have chosen me as the person to be the means by which it happened. And I'm not sure that I would have chosen any of us. Can you imagine that? Like the angels, not that we know that this happened, just think of the scenario, the angels saying, are you sure, Lord, that's the good plan? To you sinful, imperfect people, to, to, to share how much you love them. You sure that's a good plan, God? Here's what I love. God ordained it that way. He said, yes, why? Because we, by being imperfect, by being sinful, by understanding how much God loves us and forgives us, the way that we need him in our daily lives through the power of the Holy Spirit, what better people to demonstrate that love to people who have not received it yet. He says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Why do I mention that passage of scripture? Because your heavenly job description ought not to be compromised by the way that you live up to your earthly job description. The way that I work should not detract from whose I am and what I've been called to do, but it ought to affirm who I am and what I've been called to do. So this morning, man, let's dedicate ourselves. If you're watching online, dedicate yourself to exalt Christ in your workplace. May God help us to do that this morning. God, we are here today to deal with a passage of Scripture God is, God is not the easiest to navigate through. And God, I thank you that this system does not exist today, but the reality is, is we still can have a tendency to look down on someone who's not like us, look down on someone who has a different occupation than us, look down on someone regardless, define them by what they do rather than whose they are. And God, if we're struggling with that this morning, God, I pray that that, would be surrendered to you. And if it needs to be confessed to sin to you, then it would be done. But God, may we work for you. May we lead others that work for us for you. May you be exalted in our work. In Jesus' name, amen.